0: Let's hit it! Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening song, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Adore. and you can download it on any of your favorite music apps. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder, and I created Alzheimer's Speaks to connect us. As a daughter with a mom who lived with dementia for 30 years, I felt a great disconnection to services, products, and tools. And so Alzheimer's Speaks is about um, sound information, not just sound bites. We want to have a real conversation, raising all voices all around the world at all different levels. I also have to thank our listeners. You guys are wonderful. Your likes, your clicks, and shares have just expanded our platform so much. I, I, can't, even, I can't even tell you <laughs> how Um, It's just been amazing, and I so appreciate all that you do. In those few seconds of those likes, those clicks and shares, it really is making a big difference. I want to give a shout out to Coral Health because they are um, giving away their Music First and Coral Faith Free during the COVID-19. So you can just go to Coral, and that's C-O-R-O Health. Uh, dot com to get more information. And then, of course, I always have to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. Um, They just do such a wonderful job connecting people. And now they have a Cafe Connect section, which um, highlights the virtual cafes around the country. So a cafe doesn't have to be in your backyard anymore, and you don't have to leave your house if you don't want to. So with that, let's introduce you to our guests. Well, I am so excited today to have our COVID panel guests. Um, They come from a wide variety of of services and perspectives, and I know we're going to learn a lot from each of them. So I'm going to have each introduce themselves. And um, Susan, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind uh, introducing yourself.
1: Okay, my name is Susan McCauley. I'm in Ontario, Canada. And I'm a dementia care advocate. I also cared for my mom for a number of years, between 2005 and 2016. uh, She was in long-term care for four years at the end of her life, and um, I saw a lot of things that I think need to be changed. So I became an advocate activist, and I write a blog called MyAlzheimerStory.com.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And then, Holly, I'm going to have you um, introduce yourself next, if you don't mind.
2: Sure. Hi, my name is Holly Ivy. I'm with HealthStar Home Health. We are a home care agency that is based in Minnesota. We have 10 branches there. We also have two in New Mexico. And four years ago, I left Minnesota to open our 13th branch, which is based out of the Phoenix, Arizona, uh, location. And then we also provide not only dementia assistance, but we do provide assistance for skilled nursing, IV. We also provide behavioral health and mental services for individuals. And we're getting ready to start hospice as well in Minnesota.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And then uh, Jeffrey, I'm going to have you go ahead and introduce yourself if you don't mind.
3: Hello, I'm Jeffrey Brown. I'm a hospice care consultant for Brighton Hospice here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Um, I've actually been in the senior services industry uh, for a little more than eight years. Um, I have worked uh, with memory care and assisted living. And um, personally, I've had uh, a couple of different grandparents who have um, had dementia. And so um, I helped with their housing needs as well. So um I've worked kind of across the board now in housing and hospice. So um, helping seniors find the services they need and live safe, comfortable lives is just, that's kind of my every day.
0: Okay. Have you been touched um, in, with family or friends? I know you mentioned about uh, dementia but by COVID at all.
3: Um, yeah, actually, my mom uh, was diagnosed with COVID. Um, she had a bout of pneumonia in January um, before everything kind of came down. And we think that might have been. Um, and then in March, she was actually diagnosed with COVID because she had a resurgence of that pneumonia. And um, the lucky thing was she's in a high-risk category for being in her 70s. So her doctors really pretty much instantaneously got her on a, um, on a pretty robust regimen of uh, medications. And so she's doing great. So
0: Wonderful. Um, Thank yeah. you. Holly, how about you? Have you had any dementia in your family or circle of friends? And same with covid
2: yeah, I actually had an aunt of mine that had a very quick onset. It was um kind of scary being that you're in the industry and you know the signs and symptoms to look for, but then we had other individuals in the family who were kind of hiding some of um the symptoms that we just didn't catch on to, and so there was a time where she unfortunately um had injured herself while she was at home and that led to her having a stint in the hospital, and then we just saw a very fast progression. Of course, at that time, then we were able to witness it and had to move swiftly in order to get her out of home and into a a safe facility. Um, But then as far as COVID, yes, unfortunately, being in the home care industry, we've had several individuals. Um, There's a much faster outbreak taking place right now in New Mexico. Um, just because we do service areas of the Native American population. And so the reservation right now is seeing a very fast uptick in growth. Um, In Arizona, we've only seen a handful. So we've been doing um, a little bit better here. It seems like to me and what we've seen both in Minnesota, Arizona, and New Mexico, some more of um, family members who live together or have that more communal type living, unfortunately, that's where we're seeing things spread a little more quickly. So we've seen it. Um, We've seen people definitely get through it. We've also, of course, unfortunately, um, had some clients who have passed from it as well.
0: Great. Thank you. And
2: Susan, how about you?
1: I, you know, I haven't been directly affected. And I don't know anyone personally who uh, has been either sick or diagnosed Um, but I live in a small town just outside of our our capital and um, we have three long-term care facilities and in one of them uh, one of the the smaller uh, the smallest one it, they have i think about eighty patients or eighty residents, and uh thirty have died so that's that was a lot and uh it's it has really affected the the town the 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 town itself is only five thousand population five thousand so it 's very small and so i've been doing a lot of advocating around that and and the the province that i lived live in is one of also one of the worst impacted and uh, I think you know we need to be doing uh, the the problem is or part of the problem is that there were lots of issues in long long long-term care that uh, were exacerbated by this uh, pandemic and it's exposed you know all all the cracks in the system have suddenly become canyons (laughs) and there's been a lot of uh, a lot of Deaths, a lot of um, uh, illnesses in in residents and in workers as well.
0: Okay. Um, I want to get into um, kind of dive in a little deeper because of your your advocacy and stuff in terms of what you're seeing, and you you know you explained um, the numbers and stuff, but how is it affecting people, the residents, the staff, the community at large? Do you see changes taking place? Um, to compensate for COVID, you know, entering our world. Well, I think that you know, people have been people who
1: have not been exposed themselves to long-term care, or who haven't had a a parent or a relative or whatever in care, have been shocked at the conditions that have been found uh, as a result of this. Uh, pandemic, and so I think that uh, my hope is that in in the short term there's going to be a lot of action taken um, as a result of what's happened, and in the long term I hope that the whole system is rebuilt because it's clearly not working the way it is, and and when you have a, a disease like this it just spreads like wildfire. And so there's been a lot of reaction within the community, within my small community, within also the province, and also the country at large. So there's a lot of awareness that's resulted, which is a good thing. And let's see now if there's any change forthcoming. That's a different story. You know, maybe it'll be flavor of the month, and then nothing will happen.
0: Yeah, that minor detail of let's uh, (laughs) let's actually move forward and not just chit chat about it what about you you know you're a blogger what kind of response are are you hearing from from your community there
1: I think that well what I found is that uh my posts are my traffic on my on my blog is is uh gone down quite a bit I think people are busy just trying to survive uh, and they're not they don't really have as much time, although um, one might, would think that they might, because everybody's here. We're still on lockdown, so it's only essential services working. And um, but a lot of my traffic comes from the states, so uh, maybe you guys are are, are have more available availability down there in terms of free time. But I the traffic on my blog is down a little bit. Um, and, uh, I think people are just trying to, you know, do whatever it takes to survive day to day.
0: Yeah. I think there's a lot of distractions and people getting pulled in different things and changing rules constantly. So people are, you know, they're just constantly adjusting. Am I going to work? Am I not going to work? Do my kids go to daycare? You know, can we leave the house? How do I get my grocery? I mean, it's just, it's, it's constantly changing. And then when you have healthcare needs on top of it, Um, one of the things that I've seen is that there is a lot more available on, uh, you know, virtually, but it's not communicated well. And so um, people don't know where to go anymore. So it's almost like pop-up sales for educational pieces (laughs) and things like that. And they haven't um, really formulated and and drawn, um, and and I'll say kind of communities really leveraged that. I've seen a lot of um, communities not not necessarily engaging their families right now, and they're screaming for that and so it'll be interesting what what others see with that, but very few do I see doing a a real robust program in terms of maintaining even who's on their wait list, families that are currently with them right now and then um, and then educating them through the process so that they feel like they're support and i I personally, I've been screaming this for months, but I think people have to get on board with a really robust program because people are going to be more hesitant about placing. Some people have been pulling people out and you need to, I think there's a need to meld all of those services together so they feel like they're part of a family that's going to support them. Not that they're just placing a loved one, but they're, they're getting served too. Um, in the process. I think that's really bubbled to the top in my mind. Well,
1: there have been that many deaths in long term care. I think in in Quebec, which is the province next to to where I am, eighty percent of the COVID related deaths have been in long term care. So people are, uh, I think people are afraid. Lots of people wanted to take their their loved ones out. Of care, bring them home, take care of them at home, and uh, either they weren't allowed to do that, or it was problematic, or they were told if you know if you take your person out, you won't be able to get your person back in again, uh, be, it, because
0: there's long waiting lists, and I mean the whole thing is just a disaster. Yep. Well, and I think some family members don't understand that you know they placed a loved one for a reason. That reason probably hasn't gone away. It's probably escalated, and they're not seeing all those signs because they're not there 24-7. And I've had families go, well, hire someone. And I'm like, good luck with that (laughs) because, you know, the businesses are having a hard time finding staff themselves and, you know, being healthy or thinking about little things about, well, now uh, if I'm going out to get groceries, can they stay home alone? Or now am I taking them out in the community with me? I mean, there's so many levels I think that we have to help people slow down and process all of those things and yeah. um, and then be able to tap into to the services that not only their loved one needs but they need to to maneuver through this and I just don't think I mean I think it's great that you know people are doing window visits and it makes me cry every time I drive by and see one and I think oh that's got to be so difficult and I think it's great that there's space timing and things like that going on but it doesn't replace for um, many individuals, especially couples that visit every single day, you know. And you know, we're seeing the depression, we're seeing the changes in not only the person with dementia from the isolation and the change in routine, but also in their in their loved ones, their their care partners, and and the fear on all sides. And I think we have to come up with a way to better balance and support that. So. Um, Thank you for for sharing uh, what you're seeing up in up in Canada there. Holly How about you? How have you guys had to adjust? I'm
2: assuming that you've had to adjust? Yeah, we absolutely have. Um, It's been kind of an amazing transition because when you look at some of the things we've had to deal with in the past, nothing has been on such a grand scale that it requires everybody's effort from all sides. And so, I mean, just from the standpoint of as a as a community working in the medical field, it's really a challenge to be able to get what you've seen on the news—the PPE, the appropriate masks, you know, the number of uh, pieces of equipment that are necessary in order to keep our clients safe. And so, to be able to see this transition from It's me trying to keep my clients safe. It's transitioned into one where how do we as a Medicare or medical community work together? And it's brought so many of us together. We actually now have full committees where everyone's involved. We're sharing information like never before. It's, you know, I mean... Jeffrey knows this, you know, it's kind of a cutthroat industry at times. And, and you worry about, you know, if I share information, my client may leave my agency and go someplace else. And we just have seen such a difference in this where now we are collectively working on one agency is buying, you know, 100,000 masks. One agency is, is sourcing hand sanitizer. One agency is working with the county to see what we can get from everything that the government's been trying to help pass out. And so with that, we've utilized our our resources in that way so not one agency is having to try and source all those things because I can tell you, when before this started, I had already started trying to get masks and started getting gloves before there was any shutdown. And before that even happened, I was unable to get some of those. I have one order that's still on back order till August. So it really drove all of us together in a much different capacity to start caring more about what we do and why we're doing what we're doing and how do we keep our clients safest. There's been so much education around this. We've shared educational resources. We've worked diligently around the clock to be able to create um, new ways of training our employees at a faster pace. I mean, Zoom has been you know, a godsend for a lot of people, but those are some of the things that we've had to change. We've had to look at how do we source equipment when it's not available. So, you know, you talked about putting, or Susan talked about whether or not someone should take their family member out of a facility. Although that may feel like the safe thing to do, the reality is, is I've seen so many different facilities and how they've stepped up. I was on a call just this week with a facility here in Phoenix. And they had, out of a 70-bed facility, they had 11 individuals become sick. And they talked about prior to COVID, they never would have suspected that these people had anything other than a few symptoms. They only presented with a fever and with exhaustion. And they said there, you know, normally we would have just given them fluids and asked them to rest, but due to COVID, They've done so many other things, they've been able to actually get people healthy. And because they've done the training and the prep, they've been able to slow the number of people that would have been sick because they stopped families from coming in. And I know that's really hard to hear, but from this side, on the medical side, talking to people who are firsthand on the front line working in those facilities, talking to our own people who go in and out of a home, we can honestly see that the families who are staying together are causing more harm because they aren't trained the way that they should be in proper protocol for PPE. How to really wash your hands, how to really put a mask on and off so that you're not you know, infecting others. Um, if you, you know, get into that person's space, that air space, what should you be doing and watching for? So in some ways, although the distancing has caused a lot of issues, I do believe from what I've heard and from what I've personally experienced, we are doing a better job than we would have done had those family members not stayed where they were, had they not have distanced the way that we started distancing. So I do think that there's a lot that has changed um, and we've had to maneuver really quickly when it comes to no masks. You know, we've had to follow CDC guidelines, but even they are going through something they've never experienced before. What do we do when we don't have a mask? Well, we've had to come up with other solutions, and some of those solutions become what we call a round robin, where we're issuing our caregivers masks. They're required to wear them in the home. They're required to wash their hands upon entry. Once they've, you know, gotten inside, they either have to wash their hands or use hand sanitizer. And we ask them to do that in the sight of the client. We want them to visibly see us performing those extra necessary steps. And then of course, upon exit, the same thing. But depending on whether a client is COVID positive or whether they're showing symptoms, all of that is, has changed a lot. We now require caregivers to call ahead of time or stand six feet away before entry and doing a symptom check before they ever enter the home. Because if an individual is sick or is showing symptoms, we need to take necessary precautions and not just walk into the home. So we're doing that consistently before every single visit, doing the symptom questionnaire. If there's no symptoms, then making sure we're masking and that we're making sure we're washing our hands before entry. So these are all new concepts that in some ways the clients are really, you know, some take it very seriously. Some appreciate it. Some feel like maybe this is, you know, a little too much. So there's just a lot that has changed for us um, on the home care front.
0: Yeah, I I loved when you talked about the, the group cooperative purchasing because I've seen so many companies just so stretched trying to you know, do everything. And it just makes sense to chop that up and, and work together because it's so time consuming. And then that cuts down on you know, raising the price and the bidding wars and all of those types of things too, which, which are very real out there. Um, and when you were talking about you know, instituting you know, kind of these, these new procedures, I just have to add in my, my granddaughter was going to uh, preschool and then they pulled her out and they've been kind of paying for her placement going, when's it going to be safe? And she was talking with the gal the other day and she said, you know, it's kind of weird. We haven't had a cough, a sneeze, a sniffle, a fever, a nothing with these kids, you know, and, and Charlotte is one that has um, asthma really bad, my granddaughter. And so she picks up anything really quick. And she's been home and she really hasn't been sick either because, I mean, everything is cleaned and sanitized and wiped. And I mean, you know, everyone's kind of hypervigilant. So, um, yet there's that, that miss and that social interaction. And Holly, have you seen an impact on your families or have your staff, um, where now people can't get out and, you know, is there chatter on that where they're, they're feeling more isolated and alone?
2: You know, I, it depends. Um, for the most part, people are choosing to stay home. Um, it's not that they can't go out. They just understand the risks that are associated with it, especially for those who are um, have underlying health conditions already. Um, individuals who have dementia, that's a whole different, you know, way of looking at things because now it's the Will they wear a mask when they go out into public? Will they take that mask off while they're out in public? Will they you know, allow you to assist with hand washing on the frequency level that they need to or applying hand sanitizer? So there's a lot of things that go into that and there's a lot of questions that are raised around it. So most people are choosing to stay home and we've seen an uptick of course in the number of individuals Who are also asking caregivers not to come into the home. They just don't want the risk at all. So, we've had people step up the amount of care because they're home alone. They don't want to go out and they don't want to do their own shopping. So, they've said, No, I want more assistance. I don't want to be exposed. And then we've had others who've said, I only want family members to assist. And, you know, we've had people in the home where the client, unfortunately, unknowingly, had contracted COVID, not even really sure how it happened because she lives alone. Her family had not been visiting prior to the shutdown and she became COVID positive. We were one of the very first cases here um, from a lot of the agencies that I've spoken to. We had the first case, had a caregiver in the home who was wearing a mask and was also washing her hands and that sort of thing. But she ended up being just fine. Um, unbeknownst to us, she went to three other clients within the three days after that. And that of course is a big scare too. Um, and so nothing happened from that. No one else ever contracted COVID. Everybody stayed healthy. Um, so it's, it's a different way now of being considerate and you know knowing whether or not you send a caregiver into only one home into multiple homes. And then there's also the big question, which is we ask, do you have any fears surrounding this? Are you okay with multiple caregivers or will you only allow the one person to come into the home consistently? Um, and are you okay with them visiting other clients? Because sometimes they're fine with you know a change in caregiver, but I don't want them coming from someone else's home You know, so there's some fears around that that we've had to try and talk through and explain what we do so that people understand there's, you know, protocol in place to protect them. Um, But other than that, we haven't really seen too much on our side, you know, the distancing issue of people not being or feeling isolated. I did hear that in one facility this week. Um, They've been now in isolation for two and a half months. And for them, the administrators have gone above and beyond to do FaceTiming, window time, Skype. You know, no matter the time of day, they drop what they're doing. They've given all the family members their personal cell phone. And if you need me now or you need to talk now, she drops what she does and she literally goes to the the client's room and they do FaceTime right then. So I've seen, you know, the human side of this has switched so much so. That people are really trying to stay emotionally connected um, as much as they possibly can.
0: Well, and I think that that's um, <clears throat> I think that's one of the big benefits to this is that it has brought that compassion to the surface mm-hmm. in a, in a lot of ways, and staff have to relate differently. And um you know, but it's but it's still hard. Have you had any of the push pull like I know in Minnesota, we have this kind of push pull thing about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask and then being disrespectful and i had a I had a friend, for example, who went to go buy a, a plant at Home Depot, and a ninety two year old woman came up to her in her face and said. What's wrong with you? What are you wearing a mask for? I'm 92 years old. I'm not scared of this damn virus. She said to her, and it's it's yeah. just. I mean, it's just kind of bizarre out there. Are You guys seeing that too in Phoenix? Yeah,
2: yeah, we absolutely are. I think one of the biggest things is it's the person's perspective. You know, I've had clients who've said the same thing. Lived through depression. You know, the depression. We made it through the the diseases back then and the the big pandemics, and. You know, unfortunately, some people feel if it's your time to go, you know, no matter whether it's COVID or it's cancer or something else, that's just their mindset. You know, I've got other people who take this very seriously and don't want anyone coming, you know, within that six feet distance if they're not wearing a mask. You know, they absolutely just don't want to be close to you or they have family members at home who are at risk and they don't want to be the one to bring it to them. So I've seen definitely both sides Um, in the last week that we've been opening up restaurants, you know, bars, everything now. Um, We're starting to see more and more non-mask wearing people. Um, They still are out there, but not anywhere near where I was seeing 75%, 50% before. Now I'm seeing maybe 25% are wearing them. So it's definitely changed.
0: Okay, and then how is staffing going for you? Are you having issues um, trying to secure staff during COVID here?
2: You know, that was the initial scare, and all of our agencies talked about how we would strategize around that because there was this large concern that people would say, I'm not going to work anymore because I don't want to be involved with someone who may have COVID, and then there was how do we address a client who's COVID positive and getting caregivers into the home. And it's been a huge relief for all of us. I have not seen that. We have had in my my agency, I want to say we've had two or three people who've requested to take time off Um, in New Mexico, much larger population over there that we serve. Same thing over there. We've seen a handful of people. Um, But other than that, by and large, Everyone has not only committed to working, but we aren't seeing all the people call in and not go to work. I mean, prior to COVID, we had so many people calling and taking time off, and we were shuffling to reschedule shifts. And right now, everybody's staying consistent, everyone's showing up. I mean, it's actually been really nice on this side. So, no, we haven't experienced that, which has been like I said, a huge, huge relief for us that have to, you know, try and make those schedules make sense.
0: Well, oh, that's fantastic news to hear. Um, yeah. Jeffrey, I can't wait to get to you and hear how things are going with, with hospice, because, you know, we're hearing, you know, families not being able to, to get in and communicate. Oh, how is that working for, for our wonderful hospice workers?
3: It's been a real challenge, actually. And we've started a new program with some telehealth devices, um, that some of the folks are letting us, um, some of the facilities are allowing us to use, um, where it's an actual, um, If you're familiar with like a Amazon Echo device, this is an, um, an, a show device, which has the video element to it. So essentially it's a, um, a video conferencing device that allows families to actually be present in the room, kind of at the drop of a hat. It's just as easy as making a phone call. And it's, I mean, it's kind of like having a zoom or a Skype, but, um, the nice thing about it, especially in a memory care setting is, um, it doesn't take any software knowledge and the, and the family member can initiate the call and, um, and basically they schedule with the um, facility uh, workers, the nurses in the facilities to say at at one o'clock, I'm going to call, mom. And so the nurse will go in and make sure the device is on and that's all they have to do is make sure the device is on. And that way the family member can call in and have some face-to-face time um, in those facilities where people aren't allowed to visit. Because it's been really interesting here in Minnesota because it's really facility to facility how people are dealing with the shutdown. Um, Some facilities, some of of our facilities um, that we have relationships with um, have open vis I mean, it's open visitation. So people are allowed to come in and visit with precautions in place. So there's masks. There are, uh, and like Holly was talking about having interviews and symptom interviews before allowing somebody to come in as a visitor, but they're not super restrictive. Then other one- other facilities are completely restricted on visitors. I, as, um, as a consultant, am not allowed to even go in and talk to um, my referral sources, the nurses that are in the facility. So it's kind of interesting. Um, It really is facility by facility. I mean, the thing is we have um, uh, real personal connections between our nurses and their, um, and their caseload and the patients that they're serving um, because we're out there so often. That's kind of one of the things that we, that's so important in this business is that personal connection because in hospice, you're really dealing with folks in, in end of life care. And so everyone's kind of either in a crisis mode when they're first coming on board or they're really in that grieving process, you know, getting ready for the end of life. And so that those personal connections are so important and the isolation can be so um, daunting for people because we, we're, we realize now uh, in, in medicine that isolation is as dangerous as some bacterias, as some viruses, as some other um, types of illness. And isolation can be as damaging as those types of things. So it's like, one of the things that we're very adamant about at Brighton is, is making sure that those family connections are honored, um, as they needed to be, as they need to be, because we all know in this business that there are family dynamics that happen. And so, um, part of our onboarding process is really learning, um, what that family dynamic is, how involved the family is going to be, um, how much visitation they want to have. So, um, that's really important for us. I mean, as far as the COVID is going, um, with end-of-life care, things have been um, very much the same and then very different. There are certain elements of it that stay exactly the same um, and then other parts of it that are very different. So we're still out there, um, our nurses are still out there doing doing all of their cares and making sure they're making those face-to-face visits because we're considered essential employees because we are, these are, their primary caregivers are our nurses and things. So Um, But one of the things we've adjusted is oftentimes um, the CNAs that are out there, the home health aides um, that go out sometimes is on a bit of a rotation, but that has been, um, we've kind of changed our model um, and we're assigning one CNA per building. So a whole facility is getting a dedicated CNA from our team instead of having, um, because we might have 12 um, patients in a building, there might be two or three CNAs that are going in and out of of that building to deal with all those 12 patients. But now um, we're just trying to help alleviate the concern um, about cross contamination by saying this one aid is going to go to this one building. And that's kind of, that aide's full-time job is just to go to that one building, and I was wondering, similar to what you were saying, Lori, uh, and and also Susan, is this going to be kind of our new normal? Are we going to learn something from this that makes the model stronger, or is it stronger? Or you know, because I think about those personal connections, and if you have one CNA in a building who's making all of those personal connections with all of those patients, maybe that is a stronger model. I don't know. I'm not on that. I'm not in the management side of that part of it, but that is something. I mean, I don't know. I think we are going to learn a lot from this, just as Susan was saying, you know, um, but we have a specific COVID team as well. So we have, for the patients who aren't COVID positive, they're seeing their regular nurse and their regular CNA. But if someone is COVID positive, we have a specific team within our team that is that is dealing just with our COVID patients. So um, that's added a new element of our onboarding process and our admit process of, um, when somebody calls and they're saying we 're interested in hospice, we have to say, "Well, have they been tested for covid um, or it 's a little easier when somebody's living in a facility because most of the folks who are living in facilities have been tested at this point because um, our facilities here in in Minnesota have been impacted so severely. We have one facility we work with pretty regularly have a pretty large caseload in, and they had um, i, I want to say forty seven folks out of um, I think there's 300 that live in the in the whole facility, AL and um, and long term care, um, and 47 of them have passed, and a, a lot a, a large portion of those were on our caseload too. So, um, COVID's had a real impact here in Minnesota, and it's and the numbers that they're telling us right now are that it's not going away, that it's gonna um, that it, it's going to get we're gonna have another wave that's coming up that we haven't really hit our peak yet. So. Um, in that instance, I mean <clears throat> our, our greatest referral sources is, is our are the um, are the facilities the uh, assisted living and long term care facilities so that's we work mostly in that setting. Um, we do have a lot of own home patients that 's actually something that 's been interesting is we 've had a larger uptick in patients living in their own homes that are calling us and their family members are calling us um, so I don't know as much as the business has stayed very much the same and we've just had to shift a little bit of the um, mechanics of how we do things like having this COVID specific team and maybe just having one CNA per building. Those mechanics have changed a little bit, but on the whole end of life care um, has ma- has remained the same, um, especially with um, our frequency of visits and things like that is really the only thing that's been impacted. And that's often determined, determined by the facilities because um our standard is, has always been to have at least two nurse visits a week. And some of the facilities have said, that's fine and you can maintain that schedule. And then other facilities have said, no, um, you can come once. And the the Medicare mandate is once every 14 days. And some of us, some facilities have said, no, that's how often you can come. Others have said once a week. So it really is um, keeping those lines of communication open with the facilities and making sure that they have uh, the control that they need while we 're maintaining that level of care and that level of face to face interaction with our patients as as much as we can,
0: well, I like the idea of having like one staff per building because I yeah. think that increases um, just the the knowability of how something yeah. functions in the yeah. communication levels and you know when things are i mean it's like the rugs are being pulled out right and left you know and, Absolutely. and, and Absolutely. the puzzle pieces are changing all over it's much yeah. easier to communicate that to one right. individual than multiple so i think well you know you'll have less uh faults in the cracks and stuff there yeah. um how are you doing with staffing and stuff cuz i know like with hospice when my parents were on um a lot of the staffing was volunteer staff too and how how is that handled or are they deemed not essential and and can't come. So
3: so Medicare mandates that a certain number of hours every month um, from a hospice agency have to be done by volunteers, which is why volunteers are so important. Uh, That's not why they're important. That's um, why we have them on, I mean, we have them on board um, because one of the main functions that volunteers serve is, um, are what we call vigil visits and towards the towards the very end when someone's in transitional or actively dying. um, Our volunteers are sometimes are very frontline because family members need to get out and take care of themselves sometime and they don't want their loved one to be alone. So our vigil volunteers go in and will sit and be that person who's there so that people aren't alone in those end times. So a lot of our volunteers have have decided to kind of take a break from volunteering completely naturally. um, And then Um, But a lot of our volunteers, um, because they have to go through the whole process of learning how to use their PPE and to maintain distance and and stay safe anyway in hospice, those those are always concerns. there, some of them have, are just kind of treating it as business as, as usual and, and maintaining their, their same schedule. So it's, we're having to lean on fewer volunteers to do more visits, but we still have the volunteers and they're still making their visits and um, still handling bereavement care and things like that as well. Um, but uh, similar to what Holly was saying, we, we haven't seen a real fall off in staffing. What I have seen in some of the buildings are um, I've seen some real burnout. Because the nurses, um, because there's so much stress going on, like uh, even like Susan was saying, there's such a high percentage of COVID in the facilities, and any kind of communal living is going to have uh, a hard time managing something. I mean, I think about even when something a little um, less virulent, like norovirus or something, hits one of these facilities, they have to lock things down, and then something that's that's even this, you know, COVID is so much more severe. Uh, it's just, it's really stressing out the facilities because they're having to do the same things we're doing. Um, Several of my buildings um, have a specific COVID wing. So similar to how we have a specific COVID team, they are shutting down certain areas of their facility and just saying, this is the COVID area of the facility. Let's keep everybody else away from that side, that part of the, the building. And some are having, some are having success with that. And then some aren't having success, even if they've done something like that. So it's, I mean, everybody's doing the best they can, but if you think about having a specific wing of your building, you have to then minimize the staff there too, because then you, if you have multiple staff going in and out of there, then it's not going to be effective. So um, I, I've seen um, some nurses who were getting kind of close to retirement have gone ahead and retired. Um, I've seen some of that happening. Um, and then I've seen some real burnout where um, nurses are just, they're stressed to the max. And we, and we, as the consultant team at Brighton, we're trying to support them as best we can and make sure they have everything they need and feel supported in this time. Um, I mean, that's our job every day anyway. And we're just trying to do kind of go above and beyond uh, right now, just so that they under, so that they know how, how appreciated they are um, in this time. I mean, it's such an essential job. And Susan, I really appreciate what you were saying about really how, um, and this is something, Lori, I know you you talk about a lot, is um, how our model doesn't really, it's not made, <laughs> we always talk about person-centered care. Everybody's always talking about person-centered care. But the way we've built the system is not person-centered. Um, and when, um, and I, what's amazing to me is and what the blessing of having worked in hospice for the last, uh, almost three years, um, the real blessing of it to me is watching these people who have a real passion and a real calling for this specific type of care, because, um, you can preach, uh, numbers or, you know, um, returns of investment or whatever you want to anybody, but hospice people just kind of look at you sideways and they're like, uh, I'm here to serve people. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's a real blessing working in hospice and I know Holly, you wouldn't be branching. And I always say this to people too. People don't get into hospice to make money. That's not what they're here for. They're here because they have a passion and a calling for it. And it really is about, um, about people. And it really is about making those personal connections and, and serving a person to making sure they have dignity all the way to the end of their life, because the end of your life is still part of your life.
0: Yeah, very, very much uh, true. One of the things I wanted to um, just state is that, you know, you're talking about the, the video and the technology and things. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was actively dying, and I ended up having two keynotes in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And uh, my whole family thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I left. But I knew my mom had said I wasn't going to be around when she died. She needed me gone, yeah. and she needed them to all experience that process. Mm-hmm. I was thinking we would talk by the fo- by phone and my daughter said let's do FaceTime. I didn't miss anything because of video and I want people to hear that really loudly and yeah. strongly. Yeah. I was there for last rites. I was there to put my brother in line when he when no one else would. <laughs> I was I was able to guide them yeah. but not physically do it so they could still experience it. And I would really encourage volunteers to realize that as important as compassionate touch is in hospice, I'm a firm believer in that, just your voice. Yeah. You know, if you are singing a song or reading a story or just chatting and reminiscing, even if they're not responding, those are still, in in my opinion as a daughter, extremely important and they can still be done long distance. with a safety. Um, The other thing that I want to comment on that I think um, has not been um, done well in in most areas is tapping into a community who wants to help. Mm -hmm. They want to volunteer, but companies have not tapped that. They haven't Mm -hmm. told them how to do that. They haven't coordinated it. So I think there's a lot of people out there, if you let them know, you've got these opportunities where they don't have to risk themselves necessarily their health, but it could be done in, in other fashions. Um, and then there's others that would be, you know, more than glad to come in and do that visual. Um, but I know it's difficult because everybody's, you know, balancing so many balls at one time. Yep. You, you actually almost need a coordinator for something, something like that.
3: We actually do have volunteer coordinators at Brighton Hospice. So on our website, brightonhospice.com, if I can be so crass as to make a plug. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) uh, (laughs) You can find our, um, uh, we have a whole section about volunteering and what the different volunteer opportunities are and things like that. So um, we also have pet volunteers who go in and do kind of, um, it's not strictly pet therapy because they're not therapists, but um, the dogs have all gone through uh, training and things like that. They have to be specifically um, trained. So we have all, um, we do have whole sections, um, devoted to, and coordinators strictly for volunteer services.
0: Great. What about like, I know music therapists and stuff Mm -hmm. used to be able to come in. Are they able to come in at this time or not?
3: They, those, um, those are the ones, and that is also facility to facility, but our music therapists who are on staff with Brighton have, um, put together, um, YouTube videos and things like that, that they are then coordinating with the activities coordinators in the spaces to make sure that our, um, patients are getting, um, so essentially what happens is you make a, a connection inside the, the building with the activity coordinator and they go to the specific room of our specific patient and load up a video and say, here's some, you know, here's some music specifically for you and those types of things. So um, where it's, where it's very much the same as we're still making the visits, we're just having to do them completely differently. And that's, that's really, it's the mechanics of the visit are a little bit different, but the um, frequency hasn't changed.
0: Yeah, and and many are using, especially over in the UK, um, the MP3 players yeah. with, with playlists and stuff. I mean, yep. I know we have music memories here. Everybody's doing them a little bit different, and I've even done. Um, I, I haven't done them. I just facilitate. Uh, I have facilitated like four singalongs. Oh yeah. You know, uh, video wise that people can do, but that, yeah, I I think it's really interesting how people are learning to connect in different ways, and I think it's very empowering to families when they're yeah. able to connect. Cause some of them are like, oh, I did it. I didn't know I could do this. You know, and then, then this whole world opens up because yeah. the fear, the fear has, you know, alleviated itself and it was forced on them. They probably wouldn't have done it before, but you know, it, it was really a door opener. So I think that that was a, a good thing. I also had one, um, gentleman, his wife is in memory care, and he actually set up an uh, an iPad in her room that is plugged in on a table. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to turn it on. He can just beam in anytime and talk to her or see her. And he says sometimes she doesn't respond, and that's okay, but he can see her. But But with that situation, you know, he bought the equipment. They in, in yep. set it up, and then told the staff just to plug it in. And this is where I want it to be, yep. and um, that's worked really well. So then staff don't have to be called all the time right. to go in. But again, that's an expense that not everybody is is um, willing to. That's willing what
3: to our. That's kind of trying to help our te- um, some of our patients with our telehealth devices. It's kind of a similar situation, so that it's not, you know, um, for those who can't afford to make that um, purchase on their own. Yep.
0: Right. Um, a- anything coming up? Because now on top of COVID, now we have this civil unrest. Any more twists and turns coming in? Because I know down on University Avenue, I was just thinking of, we have you know one huge community down there. And I thought they must have been scared to death last night with the sirens and the smoke and the lights. And I just thought, oh, I, I just can't even imagine.
3: I was actually over on 38th uh, Avenue two days ago. Like, um, right before the unrest really started so um, all the news was going on but they really hadn't started the protest yet and I just happened to be over on that side of town dropping off some marketing materials in the vestibule of a building that they wouldn't let me into <laughs> and, um, and uh, I I came back home um, because I'm working from home mostly so I make small sojourns out with my mask on um, but uh, and then all of a sudden I, and it really kind of struck me because I was like I was literally just there, like a couple of hours ago I was there, and then all of a sudden everything started to get uh, kind of crazy over there so i mean i I have to say um, the it, it there is a lot of unrest, um, but I think the buildings <laughs> the buildings that are being destroyed and damaged right now are specific to that area and um i don't i don't think there's an i don't think there's um there might be some residential facilities a, over there there is on the saint paul side yeah yeah Yeah. and it's um yeah i don't i, I honestly don't know what to say about okay. the, uh, i mean it's it's a really scary situation and if i had a loved one in one of those facilities i don't know um I don't know how I would uh, react.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, thank you so much for your comments. Any any last comments that you want to make, Jeffrey? Otherwise, I'm gonna have you go ahead and give out that contact information. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I, don't, I think um, I really appreciated what Susan and Holly were both saying about how we're all, and, and you as well, Laurie, about how we're all learning from this situation. And um, I always believe in creative solutions to obstacles and challenges that present themselves. Um, and I think, I think we are going to learn a lot about this and a lot about how much more important certain jobs are than other jobs. And I think, um, starting to honor those, I mean, everybody started coming out and saying hazard pay for healthcare workers. And I'm like, how about reasonable pay for healthcare workers all the time? How (laughs) about that idea? (laughs) So, um, that's kind of, um, where I land. I'm always about the creative solutions. And um, I think we are going to learn a lot from this and really how to do our jobs um, more effectively, um, whatever challenges present themselves.
0: Great. And then for contact information, people can go to Brighton Hospice.
3: BrightonHospice.com. Um, okay. yep. And um, that has that's actually for all of our different markets because we're in six different um, states now. So um, you can find the Minnesota, Oregon, Wisconsin, Indiana, or Nevada, any of those offices.
0: Okay. And then is there, do you want to give out a phone number too? Or would you... Sure.
3: Our, our main office here in Minnesota is 952-856-2212. Can you and say that one more time? Sure. 952-856-2212. And um, that, they can get you in touch with any of our, we have three different offices here in Minnesota, in uh, St. Louis Park and in Lake Elmo and in Northfield. But uh, that number can direct you to any of those. Um, And it's always answered by a person, even after hours for our on-call team.
0: Okay, and I would imagine if they go to the website, there's an email for contact there? That's correct, Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey, appreciate it. Thank
3: you, Lori, I appreciate being on.
0: Um, Susan, I wanna go back to you and um, we haven't talked to you for a while and find out if you have other comments after listening to Holly and Jeffrey.
1: Yeah, there's something that I wanna, pick up on that, but that both Holly and Jeffrey kind of talked about, and and that is the importance of family members and volunteers. And one of the issues that we've run into here in Canada uh, is that, like other places, family members, one of the first steps that was taken was to uh, ban family members from going into facilities. And i really feel i i i I don't share holly's view that that's a that that's a good idea i think that family members and volunteers can be trained to wear ppe just like anyone else they can be trained to um uh distance properly to do all the, the proper protocols and they're they are essential in my opinion they're essential to the care and well-being of residents and what happened here is that that taking those people out of the mix in terms of servicing the residents in, in long-term care facilities resulted in more people getting more sick and, and dying because there were, there were cases where the family members were the ones who were feeding and hydrating the residents And without having them there, and the staff, of course, they couldn't, as as Jeffrey was saying, everyone's stressed. Uh, There's not enough um, workers, really, to do the work that that was required, particularly with the additional burden of COVID. And um, I, you know, I really feel strongly that a different approach would have been more efficacious, let's say. Okay. (laughs) That's my, that's my view
0: on that. No, it's, and it's good to hear different opinions. And I think part of, I know what I heard here in Minnesota was, you know, they were trying to limit where people are. Maybe they're trained and they do what they're supposed to when they're there, but what are they doing when they're home? You know, and, um, and that makes a difference. I mean, I remember going to a store and everyone was wearing a mask except this, this one, who was uh, you know she was probably in her 40s and we we got chatting and here she was a school teacher and and she and I just thinking oh and our kids could be going back to school I mean because we didn't know what was going on time wise and I was just like hmm that's interesting but yet you know you you know how do you you can't really marshal that you know um but it's it's just that whole that whole sense and I know here in Minnesota and many other places, I mean, it's really, you're either on board with it or you're not. And it just seems like it's a very black and white line. And there's not, um, there's not a lot of consistency. Um, Plus, I I think the other problem might be, um, would be the additional PPE needed when communities are struggling to get that in the first place. I think that was a big yeah and then i yeah. figured, um i read, read an article the other day that um even with uh, the business loans and stuff and i don't know if this is true i i read it at a pretty reputable reputable um article um location but they were saying they couldn't use those funds for ppe and i'm like <laughs> you know and i and i also read that community costs if they have even just one person with ppe triples their costs of care in terms of what needs. I mean, there's just so many factors. um, in. Yeah,
1: lots of variables. Mm -hmm. So one of the other problems that we've had is that, and it's interesting that Jeffrey should mention that one person would be going to one building. A lot of care workers in uh, Canada, because they're employed on a part-time basis to save money, they need more than one job. So they're working at several different facilities and going from facility to facility. And that's how the, that's increased the spread. And you know, so there's another factor. And um, I think some research needs to be done around the impact of, of uh, family care partners going into facilities and what role they play, um, how, how much their input is required, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we could argue back and forth, but it's just an opinion, isn't it? We don't have any proof as to uh, what difference that people actually make until we measure
0: it. Yeah. Well, to me, I think there's enough significant difference that people make a huge difference in this. In this. Realm. I think so too. And uh, in both from the social side and the the social uh, social distancing and the washing of the hands and the whole, whole nine yards. I I think we are powerful human beings, but if we're not conscious of why, if we don't really understand, um, and I think, you know, most families probably feel um, and would be more diligent because they want to be there because of their loved ones um, in the first place and want to protect them. But again, every, every, Every person has a different dynamic, but but good point, Susan. What contact information would you like? Uh, do you want them to go to your blog or? Um... Yeah, yeah. Go to my blog,
1: myalzheimersstory.com. There's about ooh, close to 700 pages on the blog now, so there's a lot of information there. And also, I have a Facebook page called Alzheimer's and Dementia Awareness Now.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for for taking the time to be with us. Holly I'm going to let you go ahead and wrap up with any last comments and uh, your contact information as well. Sure
2: Um, and I am in absolute agreement with you Susan. I do believe first and foremost family is important and more important in this type of setting. I think we've just recognized the um, depletion of the PPE being available, and the people that are on staff who have to be there every single day are running into the issues where they don't even have sometimes um, what they need available, and so it it becomes this kind of like you know, do we try to police family members coming in and out, and and do we you know try to enforce things that we can't always see? Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go along with that, and so I'm I'm absolutely for family members being there it's certainly not my intent to suggest that you know there should be anything less than that. I think it just came down to similar to the hospitals there was only so much that could be done and everyone was scrambling at the very last minute to figure out this new epidemic that has you know changed all of our lives and how do we safeguard the people that have been entrusted in our care and so um, I do hope things open back up as soon as they possibly can so the family members can be um, back in, in place where they belong, uh, seeing their family members. But that being said, um, I think it's just a transition that we've had to pivot so quickly that people have tried to make the best guess around what strategy will work. Um, and you're right, until we have enough time to look backward at this and actually measure everything, we won't know until, you know, how to handle the next pandemic, until we've, you know, totally made it through this one. So I appreciate your comments and there is definitely um, nothing on my side that would negate what you said. Um, but that being said, uh, we are HealthStar uh, Home Health. We are in Minnesota, New Mexico, and in Arizona. Um, out of the New Mexico and Arizona locations, we operate as Circle of Life Home Care. And if you want to reach out to us, you can go to our page. Our webpage is healthstarhomehealth.net. And then you can get to all of our locations that way. And if you want to reach us by phone, you can call us at 651-633-7300. Wonderful.
0: Well, thank you, Um as well, Holly, for for um, joining us today. I just thought this was a great conversation, really eye-opener, so I, I value everything that, that all of you are doing for our communities, for our elders and uh, those living with dementia and their families, so thank you. Yep, thank you. So, in wrapping up, I just want to thank everyone for listening and watching, whichever mode you are you are um, taking this all in. Please feel free to like, click, and share this with others. You can always reach me at Alzheimer'sSpeaks.com. That's Alzheimer's plural and then Speaks plural.com. There, you'll be able to find out about all of our other projects and initiatives. Until next time, be safe, stay healthy. please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.